You're doing this one for Sons of Thunder? Well, there you go. Then I'm going to help you out a little bit. No, we've already done this verse a little bit. This is a different, a different subject, different topic. We started this several weeks ago based on your guys' survey, and um, we took a little bit of a break with our Q&A, which hopefully didn't scare too many people too much, but still kind of fun. So we're going to be talking about uh, redeeming the time. Why is this thing starting over again? It's driving me insane. Insane. Let's try this again, shall we? All right. Okay, so this is based off Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, where it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So this is one of the seven wills of God, that you would redeem the time that he's given you, because the days are evil. And just think about it from this perspective. If Paul said this during his time, how much more now? The days are increasingly more evil today than what they were back then, but the enemy's always been at work. So there's always been an element of evil, but God says that we're supposed to walk circumspectly. Would somebody give me a good definition of that one? Yep. With your head on a swivel. Yes, with your head on a swivel. Yes, you're looking <laughs> around. You're looking around and checking out what's going on, that you're not just ignorant about what's going on. So this is very, very important. And so when it comes to redeeming the time, this covers so many different things. And so the first thing that we talked about is just getting us some context, and that is the fact that you are divinely designed by God. And I love this fact because I think that, especially with the rise of uh, evolution and atheism, when it comes to the purpose for your existence, it's just being eradicated. Like when you dive into a lot of these subjects of atheism, that there is no God and evolution, that we came from uh, a, a puddle of, of goo or whatever, you know, simple celled organisms that end up growing into these massive, complicated beings over millions and trillions of years, it removes the purpose of your existence or it redefines it as something that is incredibly self centered and selfish. But everyone knows that when you spend your life for yourself, I mean, it's going to end in vanity. Every time. It ends in vanity. Like, it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't mean anything. You guys know this. You're old enough to figure this stuff out. You have been on this earth for enough years to spend your days for you in such a way that you know that it ends not good. Like, this is just common. But yet we convince ourselves that, well, I need to figure out who I am and what I'm supposed to do and all this stuff. So the reality is, is that if you, if you go back to what the Bible says and you find that you have been divinely designed by God, that you are not a mistake, that the, the fact that when you were knit together in your mother's womb, it was not by accident, and that God's hand was on that process, and that even the way you're designed, your passions, your strengths, your weaknesses, your personality, the family you were born into, the circumstances that you were born into, that all those things were not an accident, but God had his hand on everything about you, then now this changes everything. Because now, with your life being in, literally in the hand of God, that means that He's given you a purpose. Because the, the truth is, is that if, if, if God did not want you to be alive, would you be alive? No. Because the Bible is very clear that the breath of every living thing is in the hand of God. So if He did not want you to be alive, you would be dead. So He wants you to be alive. His hand has been on you since the day you were conceived in your mother's womb. Your life is not an accident. There's something that He wants you to do. And that is the biblical truth. I can't make it any more clear than that. So we have to start there. If you're unwilling to believe that, then the rest of this doesn't even mean anything. So if you're struggling with that, 
then just consider it. Consider that that might actually be true. And then let's move forward a little bit because I'm willing to bet that God's gonna teach you some great things tonight if you're willing to just consider that. So now we're gonna talk about the fact that you were made for a mission because if you're divinely designed by God, then that means that there is a mission that God has made you for, the reason for your existence. And I know this to be true because I've chosen to be obedient to God in this part of my life. And every time that I've done it, it is the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done with anything that I've done. When I have submitted my will to God's mission for my life, I am like, yes, this is what I was designed for. And it didn't start when I became a pastor. This started when I was your age and even younger in middle school. When I began to really start to serve God, even if it's just a small little sliver, when I began teaching little kids, when I started doing stuff in our vacation Bible school, those things, I'm like, this is it. This is what I was made for. Seeing these little kids come to know Christ and get saved. That was incredible to be able to see them at church and encourage them in their walk with God and to try to teach them things out of the Bible. I loved as a high schooler, after doing VBS, I was a freshman, sophomore, I started teaching little kids in my old church and I started off with the second graders and I loved teaching them things about the Bible. And they were excited about it. And I love to see their eyes just light up with different things that God has shown them. And then God was teaching me things through it. And just to take care of them and their families. It was one of the most amazing things in the world. And I knew that this is why I was alive. I was alive to declare God's words to people and to help them understand what God has said. Whether they're lost and need to be saved or whether they're saved and need to grow. That's, that's my mission. And I know that's my mission. So that's something that God really taught me. And I'm very thankful that, that I was able to be in an environment where I could learn those things. And frankly, all of you guys are too. All of you that go to this church, you have an environment right here at your fingertips to find what you were made for. It's just a matter of if you want to capitalize on that or not. So you're made for a mission, made for a mission. And this mission, this is just should be common sense, is that you are made for God's purpose and pleasure, not your own. So which makes perfect sense, because if you're divinely designed by God, and he's given you a purpose, then that purpose is not something from you. It's something from him. But a lot of us think, and I think the world tries to tell us, well, if you live for God, well, then you're going to be missing out on something. Have any of you struggled with that one before? I have. If I start to do the things that God wants me to do, well, then I'm not going to do the things that I want to do or that the world tells me that I should be doing. And so I am going to miss out on something. And so that makes me not want to walk with God. This is very common, especially for your age. But I'm telling you that you are created for God's purpose and pleasure, and it's not your own. Revelation 4.11 is the clearest verse in the Bible on this one. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. For thou, or for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So you were created for God's honor and God's glory. So this leads us to our first point that we're going to talk about tonight, is that we were made to be fruitful and multiply. We were made, we were created to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this might seem like a common thing where you're like, well, okay, that makes sense. But no, 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 this is something that actually you can trace through the scriptures. Because if you think about it, on your guys' study sheet, I listed from A to J different things in the scriptures that are just at a very high level that you can see that God created us to be fruitful and multiply. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. If you don't know where Genesis 1 is, just open up your Bible, hit the table of contents, go a few pages to your right, and you got Genesis. <laughs> and if you learn that tonight, congratulations, you're on your way. All right. All right. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. 
On the sixth day of creation, God created Adam and Eve. And you have verse 26. 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. By the way, there's the Trinity in the Old Testament. Let us, God speaking plural. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So that's the second time God said they should have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So Adam, in a sense, God told them, have dominion, conquer, control. You are the king. Adam was the first king over all the earth divinely decreed by God to be the king over all the earth. He was supposed to have dominion. But he gave them a specific command in verse 28 to what? Be fruitful. be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Now think about this for a second. Why would God want that? Why would God want them to be fruitful and to multiply? Because this goes to the core of why he even decided to create Adam and Eve to begin with and mankind. Because before God even created anything, what was there? A void of darkness. No. There was nothing. It wasn't a void of darkness. Because God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. <laughs> well, void means the, the lack of something, but there wasn't anything, right? Okay. All right. <laughs> I appreciate the contribution, though. I love participation. But I did say I would call you guys out when you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. So what was there before existence? Nothing. Well, there was something. God, right? There wasn't just nothing, because nothing means there had to have been something for there to be nothing, but there wasn't anything except for God. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love to think about this kind of stuff. I'm sorry if I give you guys a headache on this one. All right. <laughs> So you have God, the Trinity, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Eternity past, He's always existed. He doesn't have a start date. He doesn't have an end date. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. There is no... He created time. He created existence. He created all of it. So before anything, there was Him. And so then He decided to create something. And it goes back to that verse we just read in Revelation 4.11. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created everything that god made was for his honor his glory his pleasure and that makes sense he deserves it he's god like he's it if there's anybody that deserves any any sort of worship or obeisance or submission or anything like that it would be god the creator of all things and so he gives these guys uh, these guys, meaning Adam and Eve. Sorry, I'm 2021 and I just automatically went to political correctness. God gave Adam and Eve, male and female, which of course that's not politically correct anyway, but God gave Adam and Eve a purpose, and that is to be fruitful and to multiply. So you have these created beings that God put in the garden, in his recreated world. He put them there to take care of everything, but he wanted them to multiply, and through their multiplication, as they would have children, and their children would have children, and their children would have children, and at this point there's no death, then they would increase in population to the point where you have this entire race of humanity that is now honoring and worshiping the Lord. 
So this is just common sense. This makes perfect sense. And so he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. So God is seeking people, people that are made in his image to be willingly to, to willingly give him honor and glory, to be able to do anything and everything that he says, to, to willingly lay down their lives to the service of their creator. That's what God is looking for. That's not anything crazy. That's not any sort of stretch of the imagination. It's just, it's very simple. It's very, very simple out of Genesis chapter 1. And of course, we know the devil pops in here and he tempts them and says, yeah, did God actually say that? You know, God's holding something back from you. And so then he ends up messing the whole plan up, introduces sin into humanity, and then there's the fall. But then God still tells them to be fruitful and to multiply after that. Now, fast forward a little bit. Go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. So now you have post-apocalyptic flood destroying the whole earth which we spent some time talking about the reason for that flood in weeks past. But now you have Noah. You have Noah, you have his sons, you have the, his wife, you have his sons' wives. And in verse 1 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, What does it say? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So it's the exact same wording that God gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And so now he, he still is seeking a physical um, repopulation of the earth of people that are going to willingly worship and honor God by being obedient to all of his commands. That's what he's looking for. And so you can work your way through. And so after you hit Noah, the next one that you really see in the Bible where God tells him to be fruitful and multiply is Abraham. And that's in Genesis 13, 15, and 17. And God tells Abraham two things. And this is very interesting. He tells him that Abraham, that based on you being obedient to me, that your seed is going to be like the dust of the earth. And then later on he says, your seed is going to be like the stars of the sky. And so he gives this promise to Abraham. And there's some really neat things why God even separated and gave those two pictures. It's really kind of cool. Because not only does he want a physical people that will worship and honor him willingly upon the earth, a physical seed, but he also wants a spiritual seed, the stars of the heavens. He wants the kingdom of God to, to, to flourish and to multiply and for those things to, to take place in the earth and throughout the universe as well. And so he says that to Abraham. And then later on down, you've got Jacob, who is also named Israel in Genesis 28 and in Genesis 35 where God specifically calls him out and wants him to be fruitful and multiply and that many nations would come from him and that he would bless many nations. And then you have letter E, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in Leviticus 26, God told them to be fruitful and to multiply. He wanted the nation of Israel to increase in strength, in power, in number. And if you look in certain passages in the book of Isaiah, God wanted the nation of Israel to be the light unto the whole world. He wanted them to be the light unto the Gentiles. He wanted them to go and to evangelize the Gentiles, that they would become Jews, become Jewish people among the Jewish race, to worship Jehovah God. That was their purpose, to be fruitful and to multiply. Then you can trace this all the way through, and then you have... Jesus. Then you have Jesus. And in Matthew 3 and in Matthew 4, one of his messages when he first came, the first words out of his mouth once he started his ministry was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we've talked about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God before. Anyone want to give me a quick summary of that one? What's the kingdom of heaven? Physical. Yes, the physical, literal kingdom that God wants to establish on the earth 
through the nation of Israel primarily, but what he wants to do is reign as king in Jerusalem, and that will increase not just from Jerusalem, but throughout the entire universe. That's what God desires. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Kingdom. Yes, the spiritual kingdom, which was made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is seeing people get saved, born again, is the terms that we use today. And so the Bible is very clear on these two terms. The book of Matthew is the one where the kingdom of heaven is mentioned exclusively in the King James Bible. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not used outside of the book of Matthew because it's written to the Jews to establish this literal physical kingdom. It's what the Jews were always looking for. And after the Jews rejected their Messiah, the only thing left for, for God to repopulate the earth with was, was with the kingdom of God. And of course, that is John 1.12. Um, as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. And so there's that spiritual birth, being born again. So Jesus offered both of those kingdoms. And see, through this whole process, while he was on the earth, he authored and he finished the gospel. Hebrews 12, 2 talks about that. And that happened when he said, it is finished in John 19 and verse 30. But Jesus did this with his disciples. He trained his disciples, and we can, we're going to look at John 17 here in a minute. But he trained his disciples to be very fruitful and multiply and that their fruit should remain. He makes this very, very clear in John 15. Go over to John 15. John 15. John chapter 15. John 15, and then take a look at verse 5. So he's speaking directly to his disciples at this point. This is before he's crucified. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. And then take a look at verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye, his disciples, bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So God receives glory when his disciples bear much fruit. And it's very clear from this verse that a disciple of Jesus Christ bears much fruit. So that's something very important just to consider. I mean, you can take that and look at your own life. What kind of fruit you got? And we're not just talking about winning people to the Lord. It's so much more than that. That's part of it, is evangelizing and getting uh, the gospel out there and people receiving the gospel and becoming born again. But fruit is so much more than that. Like, think about this. When was the last time, first of all, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you had the opportunity to sit down and share the gospel with somebody? Or maybe even just in part. Or when was the last time you got to share with somebody about what God's been teaching you? When was the last time you had the chance to invite someone to church? Or when was the last time you had the chance to really, there was a, a friend of yours that is just wayward, whether they say they're a believer or not, and you have a heart for them and you talk to them about it. And you opened up the Bible and you shared some things with them about how much you love them, how much you care about them, and how much that you want to see them grow in their walk with God. I mean, there's so much, when it comes to fruit, like that's what we're talking about, is being spiritual in this world. Having conversations with people, seeing the lost saved, seeing people that are saved grow, and you're part of that process of building them up so that way they can go and do the exact same thing. So God is glorified when ye bear much fruit. So his disciples were trained. At this point, they'd been with Jesus for three and a half years. And for three and a half years, he taught them how to do it. 
when you start to take a look at the process in the book of Luke, Luke is the book in, in, uh, in, as far as the Gospels are concerned that gives you the most linear timeline of the events of Jesus' life and his ministry. So you can see how, you know, he was born, he grew up, and then he turned 30, he was baptized, uh, he went out into the wilderness, came back from his temptation, and he began his public ministry, and he began preaching to crowds. He would go out into towns, and there would be people that would come out to see him, uh, but those crowds knew that he was coming because of John the Baptist. But he began preaching, and as he was preaching then, there would be people that would receive his words, and they would follow him. And they would be curious to know, where is he going to be next? I want to go hear him. And there would be others who would say, ah, I want nothing to do with him. He's just a crazy man. And then he would keep going. Well, he ended up building this large crowd of people to the point where there were 12 men that he picked out of that crowd to be his disciples. That he said, I want you to spend more time with me. I want you to, to go with me everywhere. I want you to forget your vocations. I want you to drop your nets. I want you to drop you being a, a tax collector. I want you to drop all these things, and I want you to follow me day in and day out, you're going to be with me for three and a half years. We're going to eat together. We're going to sleep together. We're going to work together. We're going to cry together. We're going to be exhausted together. We're going to do, we're going to go and we're going to preach together. I mean, Sons of Thunder stuff is the same thing that Andy's going through right now. He sent them out two by two, equipped them with a message because they watched him preach. And then after hearing him preach, after a period of time, Jesus says, okay, now you're going to go out two by two. So Peter, John, you're going to go to this city. Andrew, Bartholomew, you're going to go to this city. And you're going to preach to them the same message you heard me preach. And they went and they did it. They went into the towns just like Jesus did, and they preached that message. And there were people that heard them and received it, and there were others that rejected it. So they started to get a taste for ministry. Because as they started doing it, you, this, is, this would be amazing. It's the same thing that happens at our church. People would hear the Word of God, and then some people like, crazy people. Then there would be others who would say, that's interesting. I want to hear more. Then they'd go up to those disciples and say, okay, I got some questions. What about this? Well, what about this? If you're saying that he's the Messiah, then, then what about this? Or what about this? And then he, they would open up the scriptures and expound unto them Jesus out of the Old Testament, which would be their Bible, and they would start to sharpen their ministry skills. I've got, um, my mom's at home. She's sick. Could you come and pray for her? Absolutely. Let's go. I mean, all this stuff they would be facing. Everything. So for three and a half years, he taught his disciples how to be fruitful and how to multiply, including Judas, by the way. But he taught them all these things. And so then from there, Paul, who tells of himself that he was one born out of due time, he was also among what would be Jesus' disciples. And if you don't know this, Paul was actually personally discipled by Jesus out in the desert. It says that in Galatians. And that for a period of time, Jesus actually revealed himself to Paul and discipled Paul out in the desert, made all the connections that he needed to make for him to be equipped. And then Paul went and started to do some work in a local church, first in, in Jerusalem, and then he went into Antioch, and he did some great stuff there before he started his missionary journeys. But then Paul had disciples. And he taught his disciples how to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he's instructed his own disciples to go and do the exact same thing. Go to 2 Timothy 2.2. We go to this one all the time. This is our discipleship verse. 2 Timothy 2.2. Can someone read that for me? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Go ahead, Emily. Paul tells Timothy, those things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. It's the same thing Jesus did with his disciples. 
Jesus speaking to his disciples, you heard me preach. You saw me minister. Those same things, go and do that exact same thing. And those people that follow you, teach them the same things and then send them out and go do the exact same things. It's the same pattern. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, because only faithful men will carry it to the next generation, who shall be able to teach others also. And it would continue this way from generation to generation to generation. So that's what Paul did as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. And so Jesus' disciples did the exact same thing with their disciples and so on and so on and so on, all the way down to us today. Us. So that is letter J. Us. Us. So we were made to be fruitful and to multiply. And we received this pattern from Jesus, but this isn't a foreign pattern. This is what God always intended. This is what he always wanted. He always wanted us to be fruitful and to multiply. The issue is, are you? Can you? You know, when you look out into creation, plants that cannot be fruitful and multiply, what do they do? They die. And there are many reasons for it. Could be that they're not getting enough water. Could be that the soil doesn't have enough nutrients. Could be the fact that they're infested with bugs or some crazy disease. Could be the fact that the plant is put into an environment that makes it die because it's not made for that kind of climate, that kind of humidity, that kind of temperature. There's so many illustrations that you guys could run with on that one. Because as a Christian, if you want to be fruitful and multiply, you have to have the right environment. You have to get the Word of God, the water, Word of God in you. The soil of your heart has to be soft. It has to be filled with nutrients that you're going to get from the water and from the Lord as you spend time with Him. If you've got diseases, you've got to get some medicine so that way you can get those diseases off your leaves so you can actually produce something that will be fruitful. There's so many great illustrations from that. So... That is what we were made for, is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, what I want to look at is the example of Jesus, the work of the Lord. Now, this is a phrase we use in our church quite a bit, the work of the Lord. Go to John 17. John 17. The work of the Lord. Now, very, very simply, it's the work that the Lord did, the work of the Lord. But that is in our theme verse for our church this year in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which we're going to get to at the very end. But very simply, Jesus taught his disciples the work of the Lord. And his disciples taught their disciples the work of the Lord. And then they taught their disciples the work of the Lord. All the way from generation to generation to generation to you. And you are responsible for the work of the Lord. And so the same command that Jesus gives, gives to his disciples to be fruitful and multiply is the same thing that he expects from you. God expects you to be fruitful and to multiply. He expects it. He wants it to be that way. You were made for this. Some of you are more skilled in certain aspects of the work of the Lord, but it doesn't mean that you have some sort of an excuse not to be involved in the work of the Lord. And so what we're going to do with this particular series, this part of the series anyway, is I want to show you this. So first of all, you can get plugged into the work of the Lord, wherever you're at. But then also try to eliminate some of the barriers that you might have in the work of the Lord so you can be more fruitful. And some of you guys talked about how you just want to learn how to evangelize better, because that's part of the work of the Lord. So in John 17, Jesus describes what is the work of the Lord. 
And each one of these verses gives us a different aspect of what the work of the Lord actually is. So the first thing is to evangelize or to witness, to evangelize. This is the first step in the work of the Lord. It's what Jesus did at the very beginning. He evangelized first. When he went out and he began his public ministry, he evangelized. That was the very first thing that he did. So in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. He's speaking to God. This is his prayer unto God the Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And he's going to describe what this work is that he finished. Most people are shocked to find this phrase, finished the work which thou gavest me to do here in verse 4, because when people think of it is finished, what do they think of? The cross and Jesus dying on the cross. That's what they think of. But there was another work that Jesus was commanded to do by God the Father. And here he says, I've finished it. I've finished it. That thing you gave me, I've finished it. And now he's going to explain what that is. Verse 6. The first step is verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Manifested thy name unto those men. What does it mean to manifest? To make clear. To make clear. Anytime that you would have, like you, you're on a flight, uh, like the flight that I'm going to be taking on Saturday with Ben and my wife, our names are going to be on the flight manifest. And it's for the captain to know who is on that flight. And if somebody's supposed to be on that manifest and they're not, that's where the, uh, the ladies that work and the guys that work, as they're checking in through the tickets and as they're seating everybody, they find out who's here and who's not here. So let's strike them off the manifest because they're not on this flight. But there is a flight manifest. So it's a, it's a one, two-page document that these, these, the captain will have to see who is on my plane. It makes it very, very clear. Shipping manifest. When any time a, a shipment is made, whether it's by truck or by ship or whatever, there is a ship manifest. What is on this shipment? What is in this box? I mean, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus says, I have manifested thy name unto the men, making God's name clear. That's really all evangelism is. That's all that it is. Making God's identity clear. Explaining to people who he is, his nature, his character, his heart. There's so many misunderstandings about God and who he is in this world today. So many. And if you know God, it is part of your responsibility to make it clear who he is. And if there's something in your life that starts to muddle God's name, then it ought to go. Because you exist in order to make God's name clear. To manifest it. That's what Jesus did. He manifested God's name unto those men as he preached to the world. There were certain men that wanted to know more, and he made it very clear, and they received God's word. So they, in that sense, uh, were saved. And so that's the first step. Evangelize. Evangelize or witness. Manifesting God's name unto the world to those people that are receptive. And then you got verse 8. Verse 8. For I have given unto them, those that were evangelized, the words which thou gavest me, and they have, what's that? Received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So they received God's words, and have known surely, and believed God's words. So that is discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship is very, very simple. It's, it's, it's basically you're sitting down with another person, you're opening up the Word of God, and you're investing God's Word. This is what God has said to that person. And that person has two choices. Same with Jesus, same with the disciples. They can either 
receive it or reject it. If you are meeting with someone and you are being discipled and you are not willing to receive what God has said, then the only other option is to reject it and you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ and reject his words. It's not possible. That's why discipleship comes to an end for some people because they're not willing to come to a place in their life where they will just receive everything that God has for them. They can't be a disciple. You can't be like Christ if you're not going to receive what God has for you. There's no way. So to disciple, and so the second blank here is edify. Edify. So the first step is evangelize. Second step is edify or to build up. This is what you do in discipleship. You build up, you train, you strengthen, you solidify, you reinforce that person who has now been evangelized. So evangelize is letter A. Letter B is edify. You build them up. You strengthen them. And then after that, you've got verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. Jesus said, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So God sent Jesus to go do this work, evangelize and disciple. And so here in verse 18, just as God the Father sent him to do that, even so have I also sent them into the world. It's the same thing. This is as clear as it gets. God the Father sent Jesus to go and manifest his name and invest God's word in people that were willing to hear him and to build them up and to strengthen them. So as God, as you've sent me, so I've sent them to go do the exact same thing. That's what he taught his disciples to do. So that would be, your blank there is engage. 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 Or the commission to go, to put into practice, to get to work, to daily apply what you know. You got to be evangelized before you can be edified. And you have to be evangelized and edified before you can really engage in the work. And so I feel like for many of you, um, you've come to know Jesus as your Savior. Not all of you, but many of you have. And so you're really lacking on letter B and letter C. And the reason why you're lacking in letter C to engage in the work is because letter B is missing. You're not strengthened. Because when you're strengthened in the work, it makes it much easier to do the work. It's, it's very simple. We make it very complicated, but God makes it very, very simple. If you're struggling to engage in the work, well, then you need to be built up. You need to be trained. You need to be strengthened. Things in your life need to be reinforced in such a way that you can actually engage into the work. You can be commissioned to go out and do what you know. And a lot of people struggle with that. So just think about that. Where are you at? Which spot are you on? Are you born again? Do you need to be? Secondly, have you been edified to the point where you can actually go and do something? I mean, we all can do something, but can you confidently go out and handle yourself spiritually with people? You should be able to, and if not, you need to be discipled. And then when it comes to engaging, as you're engaging in the work, you're going to learn a ton as you decide to actually put these things into practice. Your discipleship will really be set on fire, and it'll multiply in your own heart when you actually engage in the work. And so then lastly, take a look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And so as a person that is engaging in discipleship, this last blank is, is very simple. is that you seek to evangelize, edify, and engage others in the work of the Lord. It's those blanks right before you in letter A, B, and C. When you are fully engaging in the work, you will seek to evangelize, edify, and engage others in the work of the Lord. That's seeing the lost saved. It's seeing the saved grow. 
And again, if you're not doing that, it's because there's something lacking. And you're not engaging because you haven't properly edified your walk with God. And you need to focus on that first, maybe. But that's exactly what Jesus wants. To manifest God's name, invest God's word. He sends them to go to the exact same thing. In verse 20, I pray for not just them, but those that are going to believe on me through their word. So their future disciples, and their future disciples, and their future disciples. So this work of the Lord is the venue through which we can be fruitful and multiply. And just as another point, I've really been thinking a lot about this, and I'm, I'm more convinced of this now than ever. You know, a lot of people, when it comes to Christianity and the gospel, it's all about the gospel. All about the gospel, which I'm not going to devalue the gospel. The gospel is incredibly important, right? <laughs> Without it, we would have no hope. We'd be going straight to hell, which is what we deserve. 100%. However, if Jesus never spent three and a half years training and edifying his guys to go and disciple and to evangelize others, how in the world would God have gotten out the message of the gospel? Have you ever thought about that? I have. I mean, I, I've been involved in this for a long time now, but it just hit me like this the other day. I'm like, I started thinking about this. I'm like, oh my goodness. So you could really argue that the work that Jesus did for three and a half years prior to dying on the cross was more important than authoring and finishing the gospel while he was on the cross. Because there had to have been a vehicle through which the good news could go out through the entire world. And not just the entire world, but from generation to generation to generation. So Jesus spent three and a half years setting the framework, creating the framework through which the gospel could propagate throughout the entire world for 2,000 years up to us today. That's incredible. So we need to evangelize. There's no doubt about it. The gospel needs to get out there. But if we don't properly disciple in this church, in 10 to 15 years, there will be no church through which the gospel could affect this area. It's not going to work. And I've seen it happen throughout. I mean, you start to take a look at stuff that's happened just in our area since 1940, 1950. There were solid, really good Bible-believing churches that witnessed and evangelized that don't exist anymore. They were powerhouses for the gospel. I mean, thousands of people were getting saved every month. Not hundreds, thousands. They affected so many people in this area. It's ridiculous. But they don't exist today, or they're barely functioning or on the verge of dying because they never discipled. They never recreated what God gave us for the next generation to carry the gospel to the next generation and so on and so on and so on. This is the work of the Lord. And this is part of the work of the Lord. So you can't have evangelism without discipleship. And you can't have discipleship without evangelism. They both have to exist. They both have to exist. And you are made to be a part of it. 100%. So point number three. How can we be fruitful and multiply? How can we be fruitful and multiply? It's very simple. How can we be fruitful and multiply? It's by being focused and faithful in the work of the Lord. Focused and faithful is our theme this year as a church as a whole. But if you really want to be fruitful and multiply, you have to be focused and faithful in the work of the Lord. And let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 for this one. This is our theme verse as well as a church. But 1 Corinthians 15.
1 Corinthians 15, 58. There's some awesome stuff in chapter 15, which we don't have time to get into. But verse 58 is our focus for this point. Someone read it. 15, 58. Good, Ethan. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, so he's talking about the context of this verse is the resurrection. That when we die, that this life and this flesh is not all that there is, that we're going to receive a new body one day. And it starts to talk about the mystery of the rapture, which is really, really cool, in verse 51. So verse 58, therefore, based on all these things, this hope that we have, this hope that we have beyond our death, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That phrase there is very important. Steadfast. Steadfast is not necessarily unmovable. Sometimes when I read this verse and I look at it, I'm like, well, aren't those synonyms? Not really. Steadfast. You know, when I think of steadfast, I think of a giant tree. I think of a giant, like, oak tree. I think of when a storm comes in, man, that tree is steadfast. It is steadfast. The roots go down deep. So it is fortified, unmovable, not able to be moved at all. You can't be moved by any of the things that happen within the, within the earth. So steadfast, that it's, it's strength, it's strong. And so because of its strength, it is unmovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Always abounding. Our work for God should never be like this. It should never be inconsistent. It should be like this. Always abounding. You know, hitting on the English of abounding, when you break this apart, you have A, then you have bounding. Bound and ing. So you have A, bound. So when you take the word bound, what would be a good way to explain something that is bound? It is tied up, tied down. It's inhibited from doing anything, so it's bound. Well, the A on the front represents what? What does that mean in English? It's the opposite. So A bounding means the opposite. So the work of God in your life should never be bound. It should never be limited. It should never be hindered. It should never be uh, kept tight. It should never be. It should be abounding. It should be released. It should. There should be nothing that's getting in the way. Like it should always be increasing, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he says here, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There are times that when we're doing something, like I've been in this, where I've evangelized to friends and they just look like deer in the headlights. They don't want to hear anything that I have to say. They just think I'm a jerk for loving them, which is amazing to me. Like people that get mad at God, I never understand this. Like I, I don't, like when I really think about this, it blows my mind that people could be mad at God. Because, and I, I get the reasons, and it's all circumstantial. But they don't understand God's heart. And this is where manifesting God's name comes in so critically. There is no one, there is absolutely no one that loves us like God does. No one. No one. The Bible is very, very clear. God knows you, all your failures, all your flaws, all your mistakes all your imperfections and everything, before you even committed any of those acts, before you even spoke them, before you even thought anything, God knows them all, and yet He still chose to die for you. And, and not only that, the way the gospel works is He doesn't force anyone to get saved. 
He gives everyone the option. So when he died on the cross, he didn't die just for the sins of the people that would receive him. He died for everyone. And when you really look at it, it's really a small number of people that receive Jesus as their Savior. A very small number in the grand scheme of things. So when God died, he didn't die just for this small number of people. He died for everyone so that everyone would have the opportunity to be right with him. He didn't leave anyone uh, unchecked. He didn't leave anyone like, oh, no, you're, not, you're outside of my grace. You're outside of my mercy. No way. There's no way you can be redeemed. Like, he, didn't, he doesn't do that. That would be sick and twisted. So God loves us so much as a human race that he was willing to not only die for each and every person, but when he was on the cross, Second Corinthians, go to 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to see this. This is one of my favorite passages on this topic. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21. It says, For he, it's talking about God, God the Father, hath made him, this would be his son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Not that he would take on sin, but God the Father made his son to be sin for us. When you really sit down and you think about that for a second, that will blow your stinking, ever-loving mind. Because Jesus Christ was never touched by sin. He never chose to sin. He was tempted, but he never made a choice to actually follow through on that temptation to sin against God the Father. So sin was something that was completely foreign to him. And not just in his humanity, from all eternity past. Like when God was around, and it was just the three of them, there's no concept of sin. Like, he didn't know it personally. He knew of it because he's God and he knows everything. But he's never been touched by sin. At this moment, when Christ died on the cross, God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Like in that very moment, he didn't just take on your sin, he became sin for you. The best correlation I can think of in my mind and in my heart that helps me to understand this is that my sin, which I know my sins, and my, and my mistakes, uh, they're great. And every time I think about it, and I think about what God's done for me, I don't, I don't deserve to even be looked upon by God, but yet He looks upon me, and I'm very thankful. But I, it breaks my heart to think of the things that I have done to transgress against God And the fact that Jesus not only took my sin upon himself, but he became those sins on my behalf and bared the wrath of God for sins that he never committed. When I think of all the things that I've done, Jesus took those upon himself in such a way that it was as if he did those very same things. And I am absolutely speechless when I think about that. That God would love me so much then not only would he take my sin upon himself, but it was as if he committed those same sins and he suffered the wrath of God on my behalf. And why did he do this? It's the second half of that verse. That we, and what's that word? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not guaranteed that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that means that he died so personally for every human being in such a way that he committed every single sin of every single person that's ever lived so that people might have the chance to be right with God. 
There is no one that loves God, that God loves more than that. I mean, I, I think about God's love, and that is just magnanimous. Like, I can't even put it into words. Why would God do that? Knowing that the majority of people would never receive him, would never receive the gift of redemption, would never know what it means to be forgiven, and yet God died for them so that they might have the chance to receive him. And then people get mad at God when they have no idea what God just has done for them. They have no clue. How could you be mad at a God like that? How? I can't be mad at God. I mean, if anything, I'm mad at myself. I'm ticked off at my own life and who I am and, and what, what kind of position I put God in. And yet he loves me like that. I can't be angry at him. If anything, you know what it does in my heart? It, it produces this overwhelming desire to love him and to serve him and to do anything that he asks. No matter how great, no matter how small, whatever God says, I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. After knowing what you've done for me, like, I'm in. Like, I don't care what it is or where I go, I'm in. Because no one loves me like you. No one loves me like you, Lord. And so I will do anything that you ask me to do. And how selfish we can be at times. So we are called to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, for our labor is never in vain in the Lord. So when we hit somebody that wants nothing to do with the gospel, that is never an excuse to stop sharing the gospel. When we run into people that are struggling with sin, there's never an excuse to stop loving them and trying to correct them and getting them to walk closer with God. There's, there's nothing that should ever get in the way because it's never a waste. It is never, ever a waste, ever. We should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's why, I don't know if you know this is our mission as a youth ministry, but this is our mission on your guys' study sheet. This is our mission statement. We have a mission statement in our youth ministry, and it's this. To glorify God by daily walking with the Lord to see the lost saved and the saved grow. Our mission is to glorify God every single day by learning how to walk with Him. And as we walk with Him, we're going to have a heart for lost people. And we're going to have a heart for saved people. And we're going to want to see the lost to get saved. And we're going to want to see the people that are saved to grow in their relationship with Him. That is really the purpose of our youth ministry. But frankly, that is your individual purpose in general. Like, that's why you're alive. So you've been wondering why you're alive today. That's it. That's it. That is your purpose. Now, some of you are good at some things versus others, but this is all of our duty to evangelize, edify, and to engage. So here's my question to you as we're kind of boiling this all down. Where are you at? Because as I analyze everything and I look at where people will land, there are people that are completely and totally lost, want nothing to do with God, and they are just like, nope, I'm out. Okay, all right, well, there's that. Then there are people that are born again, but they have no desire to grow. No desire to grow. No desire to get equipped. No desire to grow and strengthen their walk with God in such a way that they can do anything in this world. They just want to live for themselves. And that might be you. And frankly, if that is you, then man, you need to go back and check what God's done for you. Because once you start to realize what God's done for you personally, it will change your attitude 100%. 100%. And then there are those that are born again. They know they're saved. But man, they need to be built up. You need to be strengthened. You need to be reinforced in your walk as far as how to talk to somebody or how to answer questions or even understanding the Bible or even there are things that you just don't get or there, why do we do church? You've got a lot of questions. There's people that are on that side of things. And then there are many of you that do know some answers, can do stuff, but you're just not because you need to be engaged in the work of God. 
But maybe the reason why you're not engaged is just because you just need further equipping. I don't know how to do this. How do I have that conversation? I'm afraid. There's some issues in my heart that keep holding me back. And there's those of you that are, nope, I'm all in, and I'm trying to do everything I can every single day to glorify God with my life. But it takes time to get to that spot, and I still struggle with those things. I can get very selfish at times in my life. Just because I have a title of pastor doesn't mean I don't struggle with this stuff. Of course I do. There are days I don't want to open my mouth, and I don't want to talk to people. And God convicts me of those things. But that is what we're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't mean you have to be a public speaker. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily be good with people. Some of the best disciplers in our church are people that are not good public speakers. They're just not. But they're great one-on-one with another person, working through the Bible with them and through other material. So where are you at? What do you need to do? I know God has been speaking to some of you guys on where you're at and what you need to do. Maybe you've not taken discipleship seriously enough, and you need to recommit some stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But whatever that is, got to deal with it. But that's where God has us today. So next week, when uh, you guys come back, um, we're going to be doing our Q&A again. We've got a, a couple questions that are left over that Bobby can answer. Um, but I'm going to put a link out again for you guys to submit some more questions. Uh, so that way, if there's any others that he's going to take care of, he's going to handle that um, while we're in Florida. And then when we get back from Florida, then we've got the Sons of Thunder. And then on the 10th, um, when we get back together, we're going to be spending more time talking about evangelism. And talking about how do we actually engage people? How do we talk to them? What are some good tactics to use? What are some good approaches? What's worked well? What hasn't worked well? It'll be a lot of fun. And it'll be fun and awkward all at the same time. Can you go over the, uh, what's on the 13th as well? 13th. Yeah, no one cares. Um, no one cares. What now? Oh, oh, your birthday? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. We are a little over in time, so I'm going to pray here real quick. Once we're done praying, then you guys can split up in this room and do some prayer requests. Um, get in groups of two, maybe three, and you guys can share some prayer requests with each other um, and then pray for each other. Um, um, just a couple things that I'm thinking of that are on my mind. Um, you know, be praying for, for Megan and I and Ben as we travel to Florida. Um, pray for us when it comes to uh, what we're going to do while we're in Florida. Uh, we're walking into a circumstance where I, I kind of feel a little blind in a way just because I don't know their youth ministry and I don't, I've only talked with their youth leader one other time. And so just for God to give us the right wisdom uh, on how to approach them and to meet their needs in such a way that they'll want to do discipleship. But this is the stuff we're going to be sharing with them while we're down there, like straight out of John 17, the purpose of, of ministry and, and what we're supposed to do in this world. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but just be praying for that. I'll be praying for the Browns to get back home. So the Browns were in town. And they were able to leave today, but I don't know if they're going to get delayed in Texas or not. Um, but I do pray that they would get back in town, so be praying for that. Um, and then if there's any other major things you guys can share with one another, go ahead and do that. I don't know why my phone's going off. It's never on. Uh... There we go. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and, and pray really quick. We'll end things out, and then you guys can split up and pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together tonight. I do pray that you would um, just make things clear in our own hearts and minds as far as where we are at and what we ought to be doing when it comes to your work. Uh, what are those next steps that we need to do to strengthen our walk with you um, and to really engage this world? Um, the task that you've given us is, at times can seem very, very uh, big. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's not. And the plan you've given us is, is very simple, that we can just go and 
do the things that you did to make you clear to people that don't already know and, and to be able to um, equip them and to help them understand other things about the Bible and, and then to be able to see people grow in their relationship with God in such a way that they can go out and do the same thing. So help us with that. Help us to make things clear in our own hearts and minds, just the stuff that's lacking that we need to get in order. So thank you for our time again tonight. Pray that you are honored and glorified in it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.